Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and this is that. This is how the show starts. Uh, I ask my guests who they are. So, who are you? I am Scout. I am a comedian and LARPer and big history nerd, and I live in Melbourne. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good. That's Thank like you. A, quite a comprehensive list to go from. Let's see which order. I, like, because normally I like that question just to see what people say for a start. And then also just it gives me somewhere to start myself. Have you always lived in Melbourne? No, I grew up in Canberra. Okay. I was I came from a civil service family. Both my parents are economists and they met in Treasury and then worked in Treasury. And so, so I grew up in Canberra and then I went to high school in Sydney after John Howard lost the election. And both my folks were out of a job and then went to Sydney, was there, hated Sydney, and then came to Melbourne. I was originally going to go over to the States because my dad went to university over there. And then instead I I came to Melbourne and I had like a, I had a total like personal 180. Like in Sydney, I was very like straight laced. I had long blonde hair and blah, blah, blah. And then I came to Melbourne and I like changed my name, changed my pronouns, shaved my head, got involved in the socialist alternative. It was a huge, it was a, it was a very like student awakening vibe. I look back and I'm like, fuck, I can't believe I was that guy who was just harassing people outside libraries with petitions. Well, that's interesting though, because you talk about the whole the transformation. Hmm. Like, was it was it conscious? Like, I'm always interested in that because obviously finding your own identity for whoever it might be. You know, sometimes it comes gradually. Sometimes you have to, you know, shake off. You know, what came before the way you were raised. You know, what your previous experiences are. Sometimes hmm. it's aspirational in that you see something that you want to be. You know, this is this is more the idea of what it is that I want to do with my life. Can you remember, like? I mean, it might have been all those factors, you know, contributing at once, but the the massive overhaul, the complete, you know, personality, <laughs> look, identity, makeover, like I'm fascinated by this. How did that that come about, do you think? I think, I, I honestly think I just, I rubber banded and I'm massively overcorrected. Like I, I think <laughs> I, I really went from being like, <laughs> Little Miss Straight A school yeah. captain, extracurricular debating lady to like, I'm going to burn this establishment <laughs> to the goddamn ground and I don't care who I kill in the way. Like it was it was very radical for someone whose phone bill was still being paid by their mum, you know what I mean? <laughs> like I was a real I was a real champagne. Well, no, it was a real record league cider socialist for a little bit there. I don't know. I think I'd always like I'd really – I'd struggled to find like role models in my sort of like everyday life. Like I think all the people that I looked up to in a sort of like creative or emotional way were always like people I'd formed a parasocial relationship with. Like I was obsessed with Stephen Fry, like absolutely unhinged obsessed. I'd- what do you think it, that was? What was the connection with Stephen Fry? 
Oh, I think it was a very easy one-to-one connection of someone who was also gay, also a huge nerd and also bipolar. Like mm. I was just like, what? This guy hit the trifecta. Yeah. That's me. <laughs> That's me in there. I love this guy. And I also like, I also like grew up on Fry and Laurie and stuff. Uh-huh. And then when I found out about like his, uh, his backstory, I was like, oh, I feel a real affinity with this, with this sort of godlike persona. And then I sent him, I sent him a letter in a bottle what an unhinged! I was hospitalized very shortly after this. I sent him a letter in a in an old Coke, like vintage Coke bottle, and it was just like a scroll that I'd written with like a feather I'd found in the park, and I'd like use pr- like I'd put printer ink in water to like make the ink for it. It was re- oh god, and I, I don't know what I said in the thing, but it would have been he did not reply, and I think that was a good move from him legally. I mean, I. Look, it's fair to say, based on my own personal experience, that if you're someone of his profile, that bottle's getting nowhere near you. No. <laughs> that, that bottle stopped a lot of hands before it ever saw Stephen Oh, yeah. Fry. That bottle was never unsealed. Yeah. Abso- no, absolutely. I'm on, a, I'm on a list somewhere. Like they've got a they've got a really grainy picture of me up like they do at yeah. a servo when someone's just rubbed a bottle shop. Like they're like, don't open any correspondence from this bitch. They're insane. Uh, I mean the funny thing is that is probably true. There probably is there was probably a <laughs> no. note that went a note that went in a file somewhere that just said, Let's keep an eye on this one, see if any other weird packages come in the oh mail. Oh my so, god. Oh uh, lord. Have you ever met Stephen Fry? Yes. But by the time I met him, I'd really chilled out and gotten medicated. So it was a much more like chill, productive meeting. And it just happened out of the blue. Like he was in Melbourne for some speaking thing or, and he was just walking around the CBD with his significantly younger husband slash boyfriend. And I saw him and I was like, and I just sort of, I had a, I don't get, I don't get starstruck very much but it was really, really overwhelming. And I was sort of like, oh, yeah, great. Um, And I just came up to him and I was like, I know this is weird, but I'm a big fan of your stuff. And I didn't tell him about the Coke bottle. I was like, he doesn't need to know. This is good. (laughs) This feels like progress for you, Scout. Thank you. (laughs) This is actually a Medicare rebatable session. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I, no, I, I handled it relatively well. And then he just said something totally innocuous, but still lovely, like he would. And he was just like, oh, I think your dress is great. And I've uh, never thrown that dress out. So (laughs) there's a bit of a fan in me somewhere. But yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think all the like people that I was looking up to were just completely inaccessible to me. And I was like, I just got to get out of Sydney. Like I just it's just not my vibe. And this like trying to play a very perfect game in school was just really stifling. So I'm glad I went to Melbourne. I'm glad I massively overcorrected and then found a more chill middle ground. Well, I mean, sometimes that's the case, right? If you're very far in one direction, the idea that you then absolutely go in the opposite direction before you find a more natural middle makes, makes a lot of sense. Like it, Yeah. but what, what was this person before the, 
transformation? Like, why do you think that you were so obsessed with the idea of, you know, being this sort of perfect student, this, you know, what, where did that come from? Was it just the way you were raised? Was it an expectation of family? Was it an expectation on self? Was it a sense of not fitting in? So trying to find an identity, like where did that come from? Do you think? I think it came from, I, I really struggled. Like (laughs) I reckon probably every comic on this podcast has said this. I really struggled in school socially. (laughs) (laughs) I, I really, um, I never felt, I never felt like I found my people at school or, or as a kid, really. Like I only talked to one person I went to high school with. Um, and we were both similarly, like just a bit, just a bit odd. And so I just kind of, I threw myself into work and like both my parents are massive overachievers. And so there was this implicit expectation that you would work hard and you would do very well. And like you would get scholarships and you would sort of pay your own way. So I think that, I think that was just very intense pressure. And I think also at the time, like I was just, yeah, I just really, I was just so stressed and uptight all the time. I was very unhappy. And then I was sort of like, if I get high enough grades and if I do well enough in school, then I'll, you know, I'll feel better about myself. It was just really putting a lot of like cladding on the outside of something that's structurally very unsound. Um, And then at the end of year 12, massive breakdown, like huge proper, went into hospital for a month, came out, realized I needed to sort my shit out and then moved to Melbourne. And had a little fresh start, which I think was important as well. Um, not to try and like go back over sort of like salted earth in Sydney and just have be in a new place where no one knew what I was like in high school and I could just sort of become a proper adult on my own terms. Uh, yeah, so that's interesting to me. So I was, when I was finished year 12, I was about to, I grew up in country Victoria and I was about to go up to Melbourne and I was going to study journalism at RMIT in the city there and I was mm. going to live with some of my friends in the suburbs and at the very last moment, so I'd put in some, as you do at the end of year 12, you have some backup universities, you know, if you don't get into the thing that you wanted to get into. Mm. Uh, so I'd applied to Canberra University, University of Canberra as well to do journalism there. And uh, so I end, like I ended up going to Canberra because of very similar reasons to what you're saying. Not necessarily the the breakdown aspect, although if I think I'd continued on the path I was going on, maybe there would have been some aspect of that. But it was very much about that idea of I need to go somewhere where, where nobody knows who I am so I can work mm. out who I am and I can become the person, well, at least start this journey of becoming the person that I want to be. So for you, when you went to Melbourne for a fresh start, did you have a sense of like what the changes might be? Did you have like, were you kind of, you know, in the car or on the plane or however it is that you got there on the train going, yeah, this is what I'm going to do when I get to Melbourne or was it just this idea of I'm going somewhere and I'm going to have a fresh start and see what happens? I reckon I was like, uh, <laughs> I think I probably went in with the goal of like living authentically and then I got there and was just very highly suggestible. And then I just ended up getting involved in a lot of stuff that I I really should have just left alone. Um, I I just sort of like jumped from, I just sort of jumped from extreme community to extreme community. 
trying to just find my people. And along the way, I found a lot of my people. Like I found my people in student theater and roller derby and in like leftist politics, although most of those people were pretty toxic on, <laughs> on reflection. Um, and then like a lot of it was just like physically trying to, I wanted to get to a point where when I went back home to Sydney to visit mum and dad, people who'd known me in high school would blank me in the street. Like I just wanted yeah. to be completely unrecognizable. Like, I started wearing glasses. I'd always worn contacts. I shaved my head. Like I got a bunch of piercings. Like I dressed completely differently. I just wanted to be a brand new person. Like I've always loved, I've always loved films where people have to <laughs> go into witness protection or like, or like, like born films where they have mm-hmm. to be in disguise and like make a fresh start somewhere and just like stay under the, you know, I don't know. What do you think that I mean? This at the risk of this now sounding like a therapy session because I'm fascinated <laughs> by why you think that is and why because I have I've spoken about this on the show before so listeners will understand what I'm talking about if you're a regular listener if you're a new listener here for the first time welcome uh, to philosophy this is what it's like unfortunately it's like <laughs> <laughs> if you're expecting something better than this this is what it is but- no this is good we're doing good. <laughs> Um, I have a real fantasy of I read constantly about these people who uh, like there'll be a train crash or something (gasps) like that and then later on Mm. they'll work out that there wasn't as many bodies uh, left as there were people who Mm. were you know and Mm. that some people had taken that opportunity to restart their lives and this is actually a thing that has happened you know more than once it's i wouldn't say it's common but it is a thing that's happened enough that people take these moments and they just go fuck it this is it i get to escape Mm. and i that's my fantasy like my fantasy is that's why you're always on the v-line constantly (laughs) just like this is the day this is the day (laughs) Why is he always riding the trains? With $50,000 in cash, it's crazy. And also buying the train driver's drinks in the bar beforehand. (laughs) (laughs) Why does he always have what he refers to as a go bag? (laughs) Okay. Okay. I genuinely, (laughs) I've had that exact same moment. And I used to, because I read about um, D.B. Cooper and I'm obsessed with like heists and, and and yeah and like grifts and the idea of like creating a new a new life for yourself. Like you know, everyone else in the train died, but you died, and then you were born again into a new life. Um, and I used to have a go back for flights, and it had it had some cash. It was a completely insufficient go back. Like it wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten go me very far. far. Yeah. No, you could go. Had- you could not continue to be gone. Yeah. I could probably I could probably get to the nearest server and then I'd be and then I'd be doing all sorts. Um and then it had like some cash. It had one tin of chickpeas, because that seemed important. Um, and a Red Cross emergency radio so I could stay abreast of oh. current affairs. And Ooh. then just like a change of clothes. And I was like in case, just in case, it doesn't have to be prepared. One day it'll happen. I mean, okay, so what do you think this idea of, like, being able to go away and have a new identity is is about? Like, what, you know, what what is that fantasy? Like, in the idea of, particularly at the start, mm. you know, like, I mean, like you said, you settle more into which bits of it suit you and which bits of it don't suit you after a while. But at the start... Where does that compulsion come from? What is that excitement? Is it just about 
Like it is the, is it the equivalent of window shopping interests and personalities in that you go in and go, you try some on and you think this isn't for mm. me or is it a search for something bigger than that or is it something about your own sense of like identity that you were like, I don't know, I'm just interested. What do you think it is? I love the idea of window shopping identities and personalities. I think for me it just came that I was, I, I was just very, I was just really unhappy in, in my life and I was just like anything's probably got to be better than this and then I think there's also a sense of I think I think some people are prone to really like black and white thinking and like really extreme thinking and like I love a clean slate I love a fresh notebook I love a new month a new year like I love the idea that like mm-hmm. I can start today and it'll be better like I think that is a similar impulse. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. You're talking to a man that before we got on this this morning decided uh, to go through my cupboard and throw out any processed foods because I'm like, that's it. Oh I'm done my with processed God. foods. Okay. <laughs> clean slate. Okay. We got a similar clean slate pilled guy over here. Christ. No, I'm – no, I feel I, – I was like competitively gaming recently. I've gotten – like way too far into this into this game competitively and I wasn't satisfied with my performance in the game so I deleted my account entirely and now I can't get back into the game at all so I have kind of fucked myself there but it's a classic like I'm just going to burn it to the ground and like make something from the ashes um <laughs> which is a really unhealthy way to live it's a very unhealthy way to live I think uh, yeah, but where do you think, what is it? Like, I mean, what, there are some people who are just like, we don't need to, you know, burn this to the ground. It is part of nature. I mean, the idea that sometimes things burn to the ground and then regrow is very much part of the cycle of, you know, nature and the planet that we live on. So the fact that as human beings, we have some instinct for this as well, it, it doesn't necessarily surprise me. But personally, what the blank notebook, for example, like why... You know, let's let's take it to something that's a bit easier to, to deal with, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, you know, we don't have to... A bit more manageable. Yeah. A bit more blank chill. Note, t- talk to me about the blank note, notebook and what you mean by that. I think I just love... I just, I just love a fresh start. It's like that scene in Mad Men. Like, I hope she knows you're only like the beginning of things. Like, it's very, it's very that. I hate having to complete a task. Love starting a task. Love picking up a new hobby. Love that. Having to go through and commit to it to the end through all the grit and all the random shit that comes up, yuck, disgusting. But no. starting you're fine with. Mm. Starting and joining and all these sort of things you're fine with, it's more the follow-through mm. of it all that is. Yeah, absolutely. Because some people like talk about the blank page, you know, to use the notebook analogy a little further, they talk about it as being so intimidating. And I know the amount of people who have not tried something Mm. often you know i'll talk to somebody who says they want to try stand up and i'm like well you can you don't have to (laughs) for free (laughs) you don't you don't have to and you don't have to keep doing it there's no sort of it's not like a gym membership they're not going to call you every six weeks for a pound of flesh yeah if you try and unsubscribe if you do it once you can and you don't want to do it again that's fine that's like you can just try it but mm. like it's the same with learning a language like I've got friends who's like I'd love to learn French but I'm never going to be able to master French in my lifetime and I'm like yeah but you could like learn a bunch of French words and when you go to France you could like you know at least have a few lines of conversation with people and that would still be pretty nice I imagine if if that's your passion but for mm. some people 
the idea of starting something is the hurdle. For you, mm. that's not the hurdle. It's no. the, the continuing of it. Absolutely. Or yeah. Also, I think the big hurdle is not turfing it if I'm not good at it immediately. Oh, okay. Is, is a big thing as well. But I think I've always, like with comedy, like, yeah, sometimes people are like, oh, I just wish I could do stand-up. I'm like, you, lit- you can literally write anything you want and go to an open mic and you'll have five minutes and if it's the worst time of your life, that's fine. You're probably doing it to six people. None of them know who you are. You can bail afterwards. It's completely like, yeah. I've always just sort of like done things and then asked questions later, which I think is, which I think is useful. Um, but yeah, I think it's this weird, like, I don't know. I think this is weird. For me personally, I think there's this weird obsession with like perfection and purity around things and that's why I like a clean slate and a fresh start because it's like, oh, this time it'll be perfect and there yeah, won't be it, any – Hasn't been know, broken yet. Hasn't ex- been messed yes. up yet. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, that's interesting to me. So – and then when it can get a bit messy, sometimes it's easier to find a new blank page than it is to, oh, like, to deal, deal with, with the mess the, yeah. that you've created. Absolutely. I mean, this is part of the fantasy of the new life, right? Yeah. Because you get to do over part of the with new the hindsight. Life, is like I get to leave this old life behind so I don't have to be accountable. That wasn't me. That was some person who didn't have short hair and earrings. You know, that was some completely different person, right? Like, and I do think that is part of the, the for me, the, you know, the train scenario, the starting a new life is that you get to leave the mistakes you've made in your old life behind and you don't have to deal with the consequences of, you know, the actions and mistakes that you've made in your past. So, uh, like... Are you, is that part of it for you or are you better at reconciling that? Like how are you with making like mistakes or, you know, fucking stuff? Like you talk about the idea of not wanting to turf something and I assume when you say that you mean, uh, you know, be very anti-trans about it. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I knew there was a reason why you had me on. (laughs) All right, let's talk about trans women. (laughs) Let's get into it. Are they even real? I don't believe it. <laughs> Mike can edit that out. Thanks, Mike. It's, it, I think that w- I, one would hope, Scout, that if somebody has listened to this podcast before, that they have done any research on who you are, what our conversation might be. The, this, if they've made it this far. I think we're fine. <laughs> I think we can <laughs> – I think people can. I was funny. I was uh, trying to – um, you know, I do a small amount of research but before these podcasts. But Amazing. I don't. Well, I don't like to do too much, and 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 the reason is isn't actually laziness because I'm I'm fine for doing some research. I don't like you know I have jobs where researching a topic is entirely appropriate, and I need to know about things. Whereas in this, I like to often have the conversation so that I'm finding out the things at the same time as the audience is, and that way. I don't skip over things. Hopefully there's a curiosity to it. But last night I was, you know, sitting around and I was like, oh, you know what, I'm going to um, see if I can find some of Scout's uh, stand-up online just to, you know, refresh and have a look at, you know, what uh, – and turns out there's also a lot of other Scout's uh, <laughs> YouTube clips. <laughs> so it took me a while to – not Scout, a comedian, just Scout's doing things. Oh, just it's like so, knots? YouTube is <laughs> – Full of scouts 
doing things. We did it. And <laughs> to wade through a lot of that before I could find what I was actually looking for. That's it awesome. Had, re- had not really occurred to me. But uh, Also, sorry, quick sidebar on the scouts thing. I when I first um when I first started going by Scout, which was a nickname in high school, and I took it as a full name, and then now it's my middle name legally. But when I first started going by Scout on Facebook, I was inundated with requests from from Scouts across the world, like Boy Scouts. Because in Africa, if you're a Boy Scout and you have a Facebook profile, you, you put your first name as Scout and then you, your second name oh, as like your yeah, Christian okay. name. Yeah. And so I was just literally, I'm talking like a dozen a day for like six months from across continental Africa. It was sick. So many scouts. There's actually so many scouts out there. Very overwhelming. Yeah, yeah I, I certainly noticed that as I was trying to find <laughs> YouTube clips. Did you get any skills out of it? Did you learn how to start a fire or anything? Did you? I mean, did you ever do any of that when you were a kid? Were you like, because uh, no. so I got invited to a local scouts there was like a bring a mate you know try to try to rope one of your you know friends into this nice sort of night and so i went along to one of those and it's it's really interesting to me just (laughs) i'm not a i'm not a joiner that's really something that i've Mm. like as i've got older in my life i've really i i'm just not i don't Mm. like to be involved in groups or organizations or like sign up to like it's just not me and in the same way as when I went to church I was like just looking at it going yeah this like I can see why people are into this but Mm. this is just not for me this is not what I need in my life even in like I like sports but I'm not like a sports fan if you know what I mean like I'm not gonna yeah like I'd rather just watch it at home by myself I don't need to come to your thing (laughs) and we all need to dress up together or anything like that I find that and so the first time that they're all dib 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 dobbing to each other and stuff I was like this is in their little scarves this is not for me I won't be coming back Yeah, if you're um, trying to avoid community organisations, yeah. Scouts is pretty high up there. I mean, it's – yeah. I think that – I wonder what that – anyway, this is not about me. This is about you. So you move to Melbourne. You mm. start, you know, dabbling in all these various things that you yeah. described before. And one of these is is comedy. Where does comedy come into your life and your world? Um, so I think – um, also, another side note: I'm a prolific joiner. I love to join. Yeah, I love, to, I love like to get involved. I love to get involved. Yeah. Um, I think comedy happened very much sideways by accident. I thought I was going to be a Shakespeare scholar. Because um, I did you study? Uh, were you studying literature or history? Yeah, I was studying you? English and theatre studies. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I love I love history and I love early modern theatre. Um, and so I was like, yep, yeah, I'll do that. And then my tutor for one of my Shakespeare subjects was in a group called Sooth Players. I don't know if you've heard of these guys. They basically do no. improvised Shakespeare. Okay. And he was like, you should come along and try out. And I was like, this sounds like a great way of decontextualizing and recontextualizing a play. And like, you're making it from the inside out. And that, that would be really useful academically. And also I liked attention. And so mm. I was like, Good. okay. <laughs> This sounds sick. A real, a real winning combo. <laughs> Are you saying that this comedian has a kind of autistic special interest and a need for validation? <laughs> well, they're about to go far. Um, so I was like, hell yeah, let's get into it. And I did 
a cup and I did like a season of Melbourne Fringe with them, but then, and then Melbourne Comedy Festival with them. And I got the, the pass, the festival pass. So I just saw so much stuff and I saw some comedy and I was like, I reckon, I reckon I could probably do that actually. I reckon I could give that a crack. So then I set myself a goal in like November, December. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do raw next year. Like come hell or high water, I'm signing up for raw and I will either be ready or I won't be ready, but I'll, I'll have something. And then I put together the most unhinged raw set that made that I'm really glad I didn't know much going into it. Cause otherwise I would not have done it because it was very, very silly and there was no stand up in it. And like, it was just three non sequitur solo sketch bits that had just come from running jokes with mates. Like it was, I look back and I'm like, fuck insufferable. Um, and then I did my first gig. I just went to, um, comedy at the Imperial Mm. and I did an open mic there and I brought three friends and it was a long night. It was like 22 comics and I was on third last, like it Uh. was a long haul and I had a costume, like I was hanging up the back in a fucking outfit. It was grim. And then uh, I did my bit. And then the MC came up afterwards and was just like, well, that was something. Anyway, it's <laughs> like, hell yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> brutal, brutal scenes. Shout out to Ian McCarthy. Um. Here's what I will say, though. that, it, Like, in retrospect, that's great. Because if you can be something on a night like that, on 22 comedians doing sort of open mic at the Imperial Hotel. Yes. It's like... There is something like the, the fact that something stands out that you can just not be part of, you know, that I is wasn't very- just like Tinder. What's this all about? Yeah. You know? So yeah, I definitely had cut through appeal. Yeah. <laughs> I sure did. I sure did. No one else so, brought props. No one else had a sound cue. How just did me. your friends feel about it? Cause like, I remember taking, I think I maybe my first gig, I reckon I like roped a few friends to come along. They mm. pretty quickly abandoned the idea that they were going to support me once they <laughs> realised how horrible it was to go and sit in those yeah, audiences. it's a grind. But, it, the yeah. audiences are working harder than the comics at those rooms easily. Like to stay attentive and engaged in like mid to mediocre comedy for two and a half hours. That's, that's impressive. I couldn't do it. Shout I out think, to I, I think audiences. that's like, you know, when I first started out at the ESPY, there was a Sunday show and the great th- out the back in the Gershwin room. And the great thing that they had worked out was exactly what you said, mm. that you got to treat the audience well in these mm. things for the show to go well, the audience has to be treated well. So it was five bucks to get in. People would come as like Sunday recovery. They'd wander in and out of the front bar. Some would only come for the first half. Some later crowd would come in for the second half. Mm. It was the audience were treated so well that the night went well. Yeah. Because like you need the audience to be like, yeah, that one was no good, but that's fine. That's the whole point of what yeah. we're doing. I got here. a meal deal. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absol- yeah. Absolutely. 
Oh, 100%. Audiences are way more important to please than comics because comics will bend over backwards and suck any dick for stage time. Do you know what I mean? But like an audience, you've got to keep them on side. Otherwise, the whole room's fucked. Um, yeah. I was having that conversation with someone this week because they were talking about, you know, the, the American strikes, obviously, at the time we're oh, talking is the American strikes and they were like you know what, what what's the rem- i said there's no comedy union and they were like why is there not a comedy union and i was like because comedians are terrible oh my god <laughs> if eight would go out on a strike and the other 80 would be trying to get those eight spots that were just created <laughs> i've had i've had this chat with someone before when we were considering creating a comedy union because i did a lot of union work at my old job and very staunch union guy, but we were like, we were trying to figure out like a minimum paid set rate or like just something that's not free drinks. And then I was like, and then we basically got to the same realization, which was that it is so cutthroat and so many people are doing this as their passion, not their job. So they will inevitably take stage time over a proper rate and they will take stage time and the opportunity for clout over solidarity at every single turn. And that's why like that's why bands have a set like if you perform as a band for an hour at a venue like you get paid because you're bringing in people but it's anyway it's a whole thing and we were just like we, we couldn't do it cuz everyone's everyone's a little pick me well, Everyone's you need scab. everybody. Yeah, you need everybody to agree to it, and you can't get everyone to no, agree to it. That's the problem, not. right? You need everybody to. The whole point of striking is solidarity, in particular, you know, unionizing and striking. They're both mm. solidarity, and if there is no solidarity, and that people are willing to, yeah, because uh, it's ridiculous that the price that people are getting paid for spots to do comedy, you know, as entertainers have not changed in the last 30 years. In fact, in yeah. some cases, have gone backwards. And yeah. certainly when compared to cost of living, uh, have gone massively backwards. And the whole idea is they work on that principle of, well, this isn't the game. This is where you get good at it, mm. you know, until you can like mm. hopefully win the entertainment lottery in some other fashion. But yeah. like it is, yeah, it's rife for exploitation because of that and all the working Absolutely. conditions because of that. And like as someone who's been a member of the MEAA for 30 years, despite the fact that I think they're the worst fucking union in the world and <laughs> don't even have... the worst organisation. <laughs> I've been don't in, even, I've been in three unions, ca- but like... They may oh, have a God category for comedians now, I'm not sure, but they certainly have not, not had for a very long time. I if don't they think do so. Now. Cause no. I joined up recently and I don't, I think they have a thing you can tick where you say you're a comedian, but I don't think you get any kind of industry related yeah. advice. I, I certainly think for the first 10 or 15 years, I was like a member of that union. My card said part-time actor. And as someone who'd never done any acting, I had Incredible. made quite a reasonable career of being a stand-up comedian. <laughs> I was like, I'm not sure we're being treated with the sort of respect I'm looking for here, but... <laughs> But I believe in the concept, you know, I mm. like, you know, the concept of and and like I would love for the comedy industry to have more support in that sense of solidarity. You know, the idea that there were better protections, like working protections, pay protections, mm. like just general HRE, you know. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a lot of you know other issues that we've seen, you know, like in the comedy industry around, you know, like sexism, racism, like sexual assault, all all sorts of, you know, things that if there were a 
you know, a union like mm. would be the sort of place that people could go to address some of those issues as a as a first stop. So, there, you know, it's – anyway, like we're never going to fucking do it because the point is eight people would go out on strike and 80 yep. people would try to get their eight yeah. spots. <laughs> 80 people would be like, so does that mean there's an MC yeah. spot at leader now? Because I'm down. Like I'm totally yeah. down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The picket line would be so fragile. Oh, my God. <laughs> it would also be the people who already, like, have jobs yeah. and financial security outside of comedy. Like, everyone who's like, I'm going to take any 50 bucks I can get. Like, yeah, it'll it'll never work. Well, that's the other problem. And this is the one that, I mean, there is an element that already makes it about the fact that, like, when I first started, you know, I'm the son of a dairy farmer and, like, you know, mm. Husey had been working in an abattoir, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like we were – it was pretty working class comedy or, like, working class adjacent when I, when I first started doing it because there was no mm. money in it. Mm. Like it was running away to join the circus. So no one who had actually any employable life skills was attracted to it. You know, it's mm. become attractive over the years. So then you find this new generation of people who have – who can afford to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can afford to do it. You don't have to get paid, you know, because – and then you just suddenly – it does comedy become one of these things that isn't accessible for people of all life experiences and it isn't accessible for people of all economic life experiences? No, I absolutely – like I think there has been so many conversations around like making comedy more inclusive for women and making comedy more inclusive for people of colour – and the one side of that conversation that most people have neglected because they are from rich families and they personally come from intergenerational wealth and or have a lot of financial security outside of comedy is that these spaces are not accessible to working class people or people who live regionally and rurally and have to commute like serious hours in order to get gigs. And they're just not they're just not paid enough to be worth people's time or like cost of fuel or whatever. And like comedy now, I'm, I, it's absolutely 180. Like comedy now is a rich kids game for sure. For the, for at least 85% of people that I can think of in the scene. Like every, everyone has an arts degree and a, and a security blanket like to fall back on if things don't go their way. Yeah, it's so that's interesting to me. Like, it's fascinating. Like, I do think you're right. And it's not to diminish the other things, by the way, which are all great areas of inclusivity for us to concentrate on. Mm, like, mm. I, but it's I a lot, it's it, a lot yeah. easier to say, like, we need more, more women on lineups rather than saying, like, we need to pay people more so they can afford to get here or so that they can afford childcare. Like, a young female comic who's a single mum is like, she's like, I just can't, like, I can't bring my kid to gigs because people freak out. He's like three and I can't afford a sitter four nights a week. Like that's so much money. Like there's just all of those, anything, as soon as money gets involved, people are like, oh, this isn't about just like making a blanket statement or like, you know, changing a lineup. This is actually about forking out money and then people can't do it. And yeah, and just- it is a different thing. And that's what, when we talk about like, you know, what people get paid for these things or the accessibility, we talk about a lot of the time if you're in one of these art scenes, comedy scenes, you know, major cities, like not exclusively, but like, you know, Melbourne and Sydney in particular, you know, are, are probably the strongest, most regular places that you can find work, you know, in particularly in our industry in stand-up comedy. And 
like the I mean, you, if you don't, if you read a newspaper or watch the TV, you'll know that like those places are impossible for people to afford to live in anymore. Mm. So again, if the thing, if to do the thing you have to do, you have to go to the inner city where it exists, but you can't afford to live in the inner city. That then means that yes, you have to catch a train or drive your car or get a babysitter or live far, and then it becomes exclusionary to that group of people to be able to access it. So anyway, you were able to as a university educated uh, you know, <laughs> person who had someone to fall back on, economists <laughs> as parents, so it was fine. Yeah, I'm doing all right. <laughs> oh, you should see my tax liability. Oh, I'm dodging left, right and centre. <laughs> but, uh, but you... Yes, so you came in sideways. You sorry, we went off on a, a oh, big yeah. old rant there, but um, you came in sideways. You did this gig. You, mm. you you took your friends along, but did you like? Was there a catching the bug at that point, or was that like a? Did oh, you yeah. feel like that was going to be a gig. one and done? No, you were no, just no, no, you no. were ready to I go. I was yeah, I was lo- I was loving it. Hated that I only had five minutes. Absolute slut for stage time. Mm. Oh, I was so stoked. What was it? Tell me what. How long ago was this, by the way? Because it's not that long ago. This was the beginning of 2018. Yeah. So, and COVID doesn't count. We just I'm not those counting two years. COVID. Yeah. <laughs> COVID Mentally, emotionally, count. I'm not yeah. counting them. Yeah. So it was like three years ago. And uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of prodigious, you could say. Yeah. <laughs> but my ears, I don't know what. <laughs> Uh, what was the stage? Well, like, what was when you say I loved it? You know, mm. I am like. It talk, it's it's short enough ago that you might be able to actually remember because oh, yeah. I can't remember how it felt. I can remember how <laughs> me 30 years ago has reframed how it felt. Yes. But I don't actually have any muscle memory or intellectual memory even really of how that first gig went. Most of it's just been constructed through my stories through and storytelling and retellings over the years. But you might still remember. what What was it that you felt I remember I remember it really well I remember that gig I remember my first crab lab mm-hmm. I remember my first like I remember my first of most big gigs and like the first like honestly it was the first ever stand-up like the, that open mic there was four people in the audience three of them were my mates one of them was another comedian who was waiting for his turn like it was dire it was fucking dire but when I I did not have any nerves I've never had stage fright I got on stage and had pure focus and I had a captive audience. It was sick. It was so good. Like I felt so attuned to the present moment and I didn't feel stressed. I didn't feel worried about stuff. Like I just, it was, it was good. It was so, it was amazing. And I think that carried me through the first like two years of terrible gigs like gig in a pizza shop where the patrons don't know there's a gig happening oh. and there's just children <laughs> trying to enjoy a, a hammered pineapple pizza. That's not that And I'm trying thing. to talk to them about modern That's, dating. What's that, happening? That kind of happened. I, it was called Compass Comedy and yeah. it was at a pizza slice bar on Ligon Street. So I got the receipts. That was a, that was a rough gig. I did that gig three times though, so... <laughs> <laughs> you got like a free pizza with it like that was the whole yeah. thing so if we're talking about fair pay <laughs> i mean 
Not bad, actually. I, I, <laughs> there's plenty of gigs I've done where I haven't got a free slice of pizza. Thank so, you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Shout out to Annie Louie for running that gig. <laughs> I love that you did it three times. I mean, yeah, that's was- incredible. You talked about, you know, these iconic moments this first time you did. You said Crab Lab. Now, for people who listen to this podcast who don't know Melbourne comedy, explain. I mean, I I know what you're talking about, yep. but I, the, I, I'm i assuming that not everyone will immediately know what that means when you say the first time I did Crab Lab. Sure. So Crab Lab was a room that oh, I forget the name of the bar it was in. It was in, in an upstairs bar in Chinatown in Melbourne, and it was – free entry like entry by donation and it would always be packed to the gills just absolutely full of punters and everyone had popcorn for some reason they did a popcorn thing and it was one of the most electric rooms to be in unfortunately that venue didn't survive covid which is really really sad but it was a room that like you know like ann edmund's would come along and do a spot for free and would like wait up the back. And it was just like, it was a room where like that comics all aspired to. It was a real aspirational room for a lot of people, including me. And when I first did Crab Lab, it was like the audience is so close to you. The stage is tiny. It's like two A3 pieces of paper. It's so small. And the audience is right there next to you. And it was, it was sick. It was so good. Um, And I did the same like five minute set. But it was a big like, oh, no, I can actually I can actually do this like properly and not just do like tiny open mic rooms where I'm kind of paying for the privilege to be there. Like I can and, actually do a thing, a real, real game. And Crab Lab, for uh, people who don't know, like was more what, you know, people external to the industry would describe as like being like alternative comedy or as like a safer space for more experimental yes. comedians, like non-traditional, <laughs> not you sort of, like you said, you straight ahead Tinder. doesn't mean that those people couldn't perform there, but it had mm. more of a reputation for, you know, people going there because they wanted to see things that were more on the cutting edge or more experimental or more, less mainstream in yes. their approach to things. So was it a place that you said you aspired to it? Like some people would have the same aspiration for I'm, I'm going to headline at the Comics Lounge or whatever, you know, like, I mean, everybody has yeah. their own path and, totally. and can have their own markers of that path. I mean, for me, it was a, a room run by Dave Taranto back in the early Melbourne comedy days called The Cheese Shop, which was our equivalent of you know crab lab it was you felt like if you got to play that room that you had at least gained a little sort of access to a society that you wanted to be part of a group of people that you you know that were more you know people that you might want to collaborate with be friends with you know like you know that sort of thing so did it have that sense about it as well was there a opening of a community there absolutely I felt like it because I sort of felt like I was this weird like this little weirdo who was trying to get into the community and there was a real, there was a bit of an element of a boys club, which I don't think was, I don't think it was intentional. I don't think people were like, where are all the boys? I think it was like they all just gravitated to each other and just kind of looked after each other in a way that they didn't extend to other people. And I just think that was like, they just didn't really clock it as a thing. Um, But getting on Crab Lab 
meant that you had like in order to get to Crab Lab, you had to do sort of like three other gig side quests to like mm-hmm. f- beat the final <laughs> boss of Crab Lab. And so in doing those side quests, like you yeah. necessarily you had to travel and do different gigs and you had to meet people and you had to be like bearable to work with, but also like be interesting enough to like warrant a place on the lineup. Like you couldn't just be doing old hack stuff. And so I think that really helped me feel like I was more part of a community rather than someone trying to sort of butt in from the outside who, you know, like, I don't know if this is me projecting, but there's, I feel like there is a bit of a sentiment of like, oh, you need to put in the right hours and you need to, you know, you have to follow certain steps in order to do comedy. And I hadn't followed many of those steps. Like I wasn't gigging five nights a week. I was probably gigging three nights a week, but like, you know, it was like, I hadn't put in the time and paid my dues. And so I felt like I was sort of jumping the queue in a lot of ways. Um, but then. One thing we hate in Australia is queue jumpers. You oh know, my God. Uh, <laughs> Christ. It doesn't matter what political persuasion you are, you just hate, hate, a, queue just jumper. hate a queue jumper. <laughs> it's just a matter of what queue it is. Um, yeah. I really, I felt like a huge queue jumper. Um, and then I realized that. Actually, most people don't do not care. <laughs> well, don't care, but also weren't aware that like there isn't a queue. That's the yeah. I think that's the difference is that there there isn't a queue like necessarily like there are you know there are things that are good to do. Sometimes paying your dues is good to do because it's good to have that body of work underneath you. Like mm. often I will say to people who are starting out, I said, don't rush too much. Like it's good to be anonymous for a while. Then you can mm. work out who you are, what your voice is, what you're doing on stage. In this, I've been reading a lot recently. Sorry, Scout, I apologise. No, Sometimes go. this like podcast is me talking as well and I apologise for that. No, but, go, go. Um, I've been reading a lot recently about um, how – people have their personalities in entertainment in particular because of online is often they end up just becoming led by their audiences. So you might make a series of videos, but you make one where you're angry about LARPing and it gets like 3 million views. And so suddenly you're the angry about LARPing person, right? And so you lean into the thing that activates the algorithm and which in my imagination is being angry about LARPing. (laughs) (laughs) Never (laughs) underestimate the LARPing audience. I'll tell you what, I'm not LARPing. That's your catchphrase. (laughs) Well, guys, you know what? I'm sick of these half-elves. They think they can come in here and suddenly they've got unlimited healing stones and a race bonus on health points. I'm sick of this. Imagine if I was just an inflammatory, like, right wing. The Alex Jones of the LARPing community. And these goddamn orcs are coming coming into this settlement and they're taking out women for breeding. That's real Warhammer lore, by the way. <laughs> Sorry to um, Warhammer oh, fans out the, there. The Hammerheads that I have. <laughs> is that their name? The... That's awesome. Old Hammerheads. Old Hammerheads. Old yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so yeah, no, I think that's yeah. I think that's such a thing. Particularly, like I try and avoid social media as much as humanly possible. Um, like I schedule one Instagram post per week so people remember what my face looks like, and then outside of that, I just really I and I tweet as a way of like workshopping one-liners 
and I say I have shows coming up, but outside of that, I do not engage in social media at all because I find it so bad for my brain and it's such a distraction. But I think people who get big on social media and full credit to them because it is an entirely different skill set. Like it is, it is work. It is serious work. If you, you know, are committing to uploading stuff weekly or daily, if you're a psycho, like, but then you get calcified and stuck in what people like most about you in a given moment. And you have no flexibility around that. And so I think that anonymity is really important because like, even though it's only been three years, humble brag, um, I like, like I've like I've changed so much. Like I used to just be like, I'm just doing weird old stuff. Uh, I'm a Tom Walker girly. And now I'm like, no, I can also do stand up like a regular person. I can actually write a joke that doesn't rely on a sound cue or an oversized prop to carry out. Like, and so I think being able to do stuff in the dark until you figure out what, what you really want is, is really, really useful. I think that's where the flight hours come in and the whole paying your dues comes in because like you need at least a year to even get like, get your shit together properly. And if you are recording stuff and uploading stuff straight off the bat, like Christ, if I was stuck where I'd started, yeah, it would be grim. And that's, and like, that is, I'm so interested in hearing you say that. And I, absolutely think that you're correct in doing it and it's not to diminish those people who find something that they're successful at but I I often will have young comedians you know go hey this is my first set I've put it online could you have a look and give me some advice and I'm like I'll give you some advice take that down (laughs) get it off the internet I haven't seen it yet but here's my advice to you take that down because I guarantee you there are like I, there's a, record, a special I recorded in 2009 at the Sydney Comedy Festival that if I ever became rich enough, the first thing I would do is use money to erase that from existence. <laughs> oh my God. Like I would find the people who bought it, go around to their yes. houses and like buy the copies back at like You're over leaving a vegan prices. dead horse head in their bed. Just yeah. take it down. Yeah. I'd yeah. Go, yeah. Like I mean, so the I idea I feel exactly that, the same. Even about being like – trapped, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like even – even stuff that I filmed in like 2019, I'm like, oh, I, <laughs> I asked my manager, I was like, Jono, can you get it <laughs> taken down? It, it looks so like, because I see how much I've grown since then. And I'm like, I hate that that's the thing that pops up when people search by name because it fucking sucks. Like in retrospect, it's useful to have as a recording. Like it's useful to have as a recording. It's useful to voice memo your sets. Like everyone voice memos their sets and listens back to it. Or like if you have a mate who's also really into comedy and has your back, then you send it to them and you're like, did this bit work and did this bit not work? But like, for the love of Christ, don't make it publicly available because if you're starting out, you're new, you're probably a fucking idiot and you're going to say something dumb and it could really come back to haunt you. And even if you don't say anything dumb that can come back to haunt you, you're then, that's just up there forever. And people don't have any sense of like how people can grow and develop over time, you know, and that's why people get cancelled over tweets from 2011. Yeah, and it is also one of those things where I imagine that the reason that you put it up is in the hope that 
people will give you feedback, you know, as in like, I don't I mean you want it to be positive. You imagine back then you're going to yeah. put it up and everyone's going to go, this is amazing, right? Oh, my right? God, incredible. So what you're going to do is go and read the comments on it. And oh, no. here's what I've got to tell you. That's not going to be good for you it, it, in, even, in any way. If yep. they're positive or negative, yep. I guarantee you whatever that implants in your brain is not going to be healthy on your creative journey. Yep. It, it particularly, yeah, Christ, like – you never read below the line. You never read below the line. Like I've said, I've seen. There's a lot of comics who have like come up around the same time as me, who have like pivoted to doing TikTok stuff, and I've genuinely seen it consume them. Like that constant feedback of just people, and often like the algorithm is literally fed by outrage. Yes. So. The only way for you to get big is for you to either be outraged or something or, or people to be outraged. Yeah. yeah. And so it's I mean, just your hot takes on LARPing, I feel <laughs> like, might be. <laughs> um, you guys heard about this dual wielding bonus? That's insane. Are you telling me that a guy can come at me with two yeah. katanas and suddenly uh, I can't even deflect a melee blow? That's crazy. Honestly, I should just do this for my own. I mean, you actually should do this. The more you do it, the more even I, as a person who is not on social media and does not understand anything you're talking about, am suddenly like, yeah, actually, that is probably a TikTok I would watch. Local LARPA loses their mind yeah, that's for right. two minutes at a time. Local LARPA destroys, you know, orcs or whatever destroys it is. Destroys half-elf syndicate. <laughs> Local LARPA exposes vampire grooming circle. That's a real thing that happened in our community. Oh no, oh no. no, we won't talk about it on this podcast for legal reasons, but that did happen. Oh and no. anyone listening oh no. knows who it was. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so you talk about that idea of then trying to discover what your own voice is without that external feedback. Mm. You talked about the idea of like, listening back to your sets, like recording them and listening back and like sharing them with other people. I like there was a shiver that went down my spine when I heard <laughs> no. you say that because not from your point of view I'd like just from my own which is as a man who has like 900 like recorded but unlistened to sets mm. on my phone like the I, I record them in the hope that one day I'll be a better <laughs> human and can go back and listen to them and get better at what I do mm. but the idea of sending it to someone else to listen to to share I find that really and again you know, I mean, you've talked a lot about how, you know, often you are a little more open to sharing or opening that door, you know, certainly than somebody like me is. So you do have some trusted people that you can collaborate with or at least run something by who, who, oh, who are open absolutely. to that. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Like um, I've definitely got – there's definitely people I workshop bits with and often the best way – to workshop that is to just do it, record it and say like, do you think this ending works or does it need a tag or whatever? And like there's there's mates that I definitely do that back and forth with, which I love, like a friend of mine who's very, very funny is just getting into stand-up and I think he's sent me every single gig he's done and I just give him little notes of feedback and I'm like, this was sick and like you tune into this and I think that's I think that's really useful. I love a bit of feedback. I, okay, so feedback, giving and receiving, yeah. So I give you like, and receive. I'm a generous feedbacker. And do you have a – like, I mean, this podcast is loosely about philosophies. Do you have a philosophy for giving advice and feedback? I'll give you an example of what I mean. Mm. Uh, you know, my I, I'm very happy to give someone advice, but my 
absolute philosophy for advice is that I don't know anything. You can take from mm. it whatever you want to take from it. And if you take – this is the big one for me. If you decide to hear what I have to say and then do the complete opposite still, I am fine with that. Like don't mm. don't feel that any of this advice is binding in any way or I'll be upset if you don't take it. Do you have any particular advice philosophy? Like do you think about how you give or receive advice? Um, I think I'm the abs – I think <laughs> I really resent – when I give people well thought out advice and they completely disregard it. If you take it on board and then you're like, actually, no, you don't have a full information set and blah, blah, blah. Like that's fine. But I'm quite, I'm quite brutal in feedback. I'm quite brutally honest in feedback and advice. And I think that's good because I think if you, not to just anyone, like if I go see a show and it was like kind of mediocre and I only sort of know the guy who did it, I'll be like, that was that was great. How did you feel? Like I'll just ask questions mm. about how they felt about it, yeah. and if they're like, "Yeah, it went they really know, well," they, then I'll, they, they know that you they either know. But it was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I'm asking you questions after a gig, know yeah. that you fucking. So bombed. how do you think that you went? <laughs> <laughs> well, so are you happy with that? Yeah. I, I was. Yeah. Is that going to be worked on or no? Um, yeah. So you finished that arts degree, by the way. Just yeah. out of, you know, not completely. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that like a? Is that new gear yeah. or you, is... <laughs> someone off their gala set? Yeah, yeah, it's great to see people trying new. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I with friends in particular, yeah. I give quite really honest, unfiltered feedback, Frank. and I'm like, I just want you to know honestly what I'm thinking about this. And if like you can, it's not coming from a place of like being mean. It's just, I want to, I don't want to sugarcoat or like hold back anything because if I'm thinking it, there's a good chance that someone else is thinking it. And if no one tells you and you've not clocked it and you just go ahead with it, then that's not helpful to anyone. So I'm very open and honest and brutal with feedback. And I think that's good. And I prefer when people are like that with me. Okay. Um, but I hate unsolicited advice I hate unsolicited advice just after a gig. Yeah. I hate unsolicited so advice happy, just full, after a gig from a comedian. Happy with full and frank feedback if it's yes. asked for. Yes. Consent always, I you mean, know. it does feel like a pretty good policy just in general, Thank doesn't you. it? Thank <laughs> Yeah, I'm doing yeah. all right. But I just, I, yeah, I can't stand when... With, if a comic gives me a note after a joke, I'll be like, I'll usually be open to it, particularly if it's new. But if, fuck, if an audience member comes up and has two cents, I'll listen. But I, your massive grain of salt with that. Well, I mean, of course, because it's then it's just the same as like you know reading one random comment on your clip and deciding that that person knows what that they're that talking about. That should suddenly about. inform, yeah, yeah, the whole, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean. An audience is a group of individuals, but individual feedback is often like mm. it's not even the audience's job to know why they like something. I think personally, no, just have a gut response. Yeah, and did you also, like it? You can intellectualize later why you liked it or not, but yeah. like you don't actually have to work out why every person liked every piece of it. You know, it doesn't. That doesn't. Yeah. it's not necessary. Well, it's like you know, it's like um. In that film about John Keats, like poetry is not a poetry is not something to be figured out. It's a lake to be submerged in. Not to be a wanker, but like that. Well, <laughs> like, sorry, you failed that. Um, oh God! You were absolutely that absolutely was real wankery. Thank you. Thank this you. This is just full 
Arts degree coming through. Arts degree coming through. Beep, beep. Beep, beep. Um, So language is a part of it though. I mean seriously as a pivot in this moment. So mm. part of what you do definitely starts with language. Like, you know, you like to play with language, you know. like Mm. Rhyme um, zone, I love it. Yeah. So what? like, I mean, no, but seriously, like there is that – there is a construction, a, a work to what you do that is, you know, there's a lot of writing first or concept first because it's yeah. not always necessarily the wordplay. Like some of it might be like, but, you know, for example, I was watching some of your stand up and, you know, what you were, you had, you know, a thing that is, has been, you know, part of your act in various ways where you will have designed something, a new product, or you'll be showing, you know, a, yes. a picture of something. And often it's the, the, the cartoon or the scene or whatever it is that you've constructed that you're showing the audience is kind of just a visual wordplay. You know, it's an yes. extension of a visual wordplay, if that makes sense. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think I definitely start from writing first. And then okay. I think like when people go up on stage and then just riff and then sort of like create stuff from that or people who create comedy from movement or I, I'm fascinated by that because for me, everything is in a massively detailed Google Doc and then it is remembered and memorized and then it is performed and then like all the other bits kind of layer on top of it. But I think it always starts, yeah, I think I've always been a massive word nerd. And so I think it makes sense that it always starts from the words. It's interesting though. I, what I noticed in watching you stand up was that there is – Definitely aspects of physicality in your performance that are seem to be planned, right? Is there like, mm. or is that instinctual? Like the way that you move on stage, like the gestures, like are they? Are you, is that scout in the moment, like reacting to the audience, and that's how you do that wave or that kick or that thing, or is that kind of part of I've thought out how this is all going to work together, and this will happen here, and this will happen here. No, I don't. I think physicality wise, it's very in the moment. Good, I did go to clown school for two weeks. Oh, yeah. But I, well, didn't... I mean, it's compulsory now, right? To... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't been to Gullier, don't even bother. You're actually not eligible for an award unless you've gone to Gullier. That's the rules. Um, no, I, I've, I was sort of interested in like yeah. physical comedy. I hated clown school. I thought it was awful. Um, massive waste of everyone's time and money. But I, I like whenever I'm whenever I feel like I really know the material and I really feel confident in the material and in that space, then the physicality can come in. But I don't – I'm not planning that, uh-huh. I don't think. Interesting. That's, yeah. I mean, that's why I asked the question. Yeah. Um, what What is – like we spoke about COVID and obviously, mm. you know, if you – I'm just interested in starting out in a career – you know, mm. or a new thing that you're doing. Were you considering it that like a career at this point? Were you, like pre-COVID, like pre the yes. pandemic, were you sort of like, oh, you know what, I feel like I found maybe my thing, this is what I'm going to pursue. Like did it feel like you had already got to that point before it happened? I didn't feel like I'd gotten to that point in terms of competency or ability to provide for myself, no. but I was like I'm – I think this is what I'd like to do with my life. And it was really – Honestly, COVID really, uh, by cancelling the Melbourne Comedy Festival that year, COVID really saved my ass because I was literally about to quit my job. Uh I was about to quit my steady court transcription COVID-proof job 
to do comedy festival because they weren't going to give me leave. And then comedy festival was canceled. And then I was like, okay, I think I'm going to stick with this job and ride this out. And I'm so grateful I did because otherwise I would have been in serious financial straits. Um, and then after that, I was like, okay, I think, I think I can make this work. I think if I juggle together enough savings, minority grant money and <laughs> earnings, I mean, look, everyone's thinking it. I'm just going to say it. Yes, I tick a lot of boxes and I'm happy to do so. <laughs> I'll never say no. <laughs> I'll be whatever you want me to be. Oh, you want me to be chronically ill? All right. You want me to be queer? Yeah, fair enough. I'm gay for pay, actually. Um, and that pay is just government grants. Um Gay for Grant. I'm gay, yeah. I'm actually queer for grants. It's true. It's true. That's actually one of the great perks of dating me as a man is that you can now tick the LGBTQIA box if you're going for inclusive programming. So it's just a reminder to anyone out there. Your non-binary friends are a gateway to a lot of government money. Oh, um, man. So oh. I... I'm interested though in yeah. So that's the practical side of it. You know, mm. you keep a job that can, you know, like you said, you can get yourself in a position to launch into it when things, you know, open back up again. But mm. Mm. what about, you know, I at the start of the pandemic, you know, there was always people who wanted to talk to me about the idea of, you know, comedy going away, and of course it was a big deal that comedy went away and all those mm. sort of things. But as I would always say to them. Like, I was about to do my 25th year in a row at the comedy festival. Like, <gasps> you know, it's kind of sad that I didn't get to do my 25th year in a row, but I got to do 24 years in a row. You know, like, so yes. regardless of if the pandemic had gone on forever and, you know, comedy never came back, like, I couldn't walk away and think I didn't get my fair shot at, like, you know, getting to do what I wanted to do. Whereas mm. for you, literally you've just kind of discovered, you know, you've been on this – you, you have a new identity, you've been on kind of a search on like, where do I fit in? Like you found a place that creatively, you know, is starting to fulfill you and excite you. And yeah, there's some forward momentum in this. And then this thing comes along and, and takes it all away. What did, what did that feel like in, a, in, in that sense? Um, the loss of momentum was pretty brutal. I think it really... Like at that point, I think I'd found my people and my people were like LARP people and comedy people. And obviously, like, I didn't really have access to either of those communities for kind of like two years um, well, one and a half years. And yeah, the I think everyone who was coming up in comedy around the same time as me, like, you know, we all did like we all did Raw together and we'd all done our first like Melbourne Fringe show together. And like it was it was pretty it was pretty brutal to have that momentum cut short and then to be put on ice for so long was hard. And it also meant that when we came back, we weren't ready because we just had not gigged. Like we physically, I mean, that's why like when gigs started coming back, I made like a room in my, I made a room in my house that was just like, I called it hairbrush comedy because everyone's spoken to a hairbrush because we didn't have a mic. And it was just so people could get gig ready again because no one had performed 
in months and months and months and months and everyone had lost their sense of stage timing and like how to hold eye contact with an audience. Like we'd just lost all of it. And so it took a while for that to come back. Everyone bounced back well though, I think. And then I think since then it's been pretty like steady for me. Like I've just, I genuinely have just lucked into jobs that I did not know existed and like weird bits of money that I just had no concept of. And honestly, I mean, in a, in a way being on JobKeeper all through the pandemic and before that earning like good money meant that I did have savings so that when I took the jump, if I hadn't, and I'd taken that jump, I would have been cooked within three months because you don't get your comedy festival settlement for months. And then between then, like you have like 800 bucks to play with. Like you've, it was so in a way it kind of financially, it was probably better, but yeah, creatively it was pretty brutal, but also it did then give me two years to work on that show, which that show needed. So, Oh, I mean, that is the one thing that I could almost say that comedy festival would be doing everyone a favor if once in every three years, just like a week before the festival said it's off this year. It's done. Sorry. Everyone still gets paid. Everyone gets a stipend, but like, Take a moment back, to think. Come back next year. <laughs> like just, just have another 12 months just to think oh, about 100%. You, whether you yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So where are you now then in your comedy career? Like where, as in like, so where do you, I don't mean like, where are you in your, like, you know, I mean, philosophically, where do you mm. feel like you are creatively in your comedy career? Like what is inspiring you? What excites you? Like what what are the challenges that you see in front of yourself as like a, an artist and a performer? Like, you know, where are you at like in your comedy mm. career? That, you know, not, not, not externally, internally. <laughs> I think for grant reasons, I am an emerging artist and <laughs> for like, for, and no, actually I do. I yeah. am an emerging artist. Well, I mean, I think of course like, you are though. Like, I mean, that is I'm a true. Little, I'm a little baby. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm very, very green. Yeah. Um, I think I'm honestly at a point where I'm still in love with it. Like I still genuinely love it. Even this year when I did, like this year was my biggest year in terms of festival circuit. Mm-hmm. Like I did Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane back to back and which is pretty standard for a working comic, but was my first rodeo at it. I got to a point of burnout towards the end, even though I was looking after myself really well, I got to a point where I was like, oh, this is really brutal. And what was, what was the burnout though? Like, was it physical, mental? Physical mostly. Performance? Like, yeah. Okay. The performance, I think, even though I felt exhausted and very ment, like mentally and in terms of sensory stuff, like massive burnout. Um, but even I think the performances were still solid by the end there, which is nice. But I think even then, even at the end of that, when I was like, fuck, I just want to be horizontal and just not think about anything. Even then I was like, I'll take a month off and then I'll be ready again. And I was like, which was, so I still, I'm still at a point where I love it and I'm very like starry eyed and I'm like, Oh, comedy is so good. And stage side, like I still love even like I did a gig this week that had 10 punters in. And I was still like, yeah, this rules. I love this. Stage time, like, can be part of it, obviously. But there's got to be more, like, to do it, stage time's not enough, as in, like, for five five years, six years, three years, we're calling it. Um, (laughs) 
It's not enough stage time, yeah. I don't think. And, okay. I, and I feel like if it is all you're after, it's very hard to sustain or maintain that like through a, an artistic career. So there's got to be – what are the other things? Like we filled in one of the pillars, which is mm. the actual just being up there and people looking at you. But there's <laughs> – there's, other ways to achieve that, right? That yeah, aren't you could up. busk on Burke Street. Yeah, and There's a lot plenty more of people you... would look at you, yeah, you know, it's technically. True. So it's true. I'd probably get pissed on, but what can you do? Yeah, um, you're already doing a gig down at the uh, pizza shop, so you can just, like, walk <laughs> down. You can... Uh, rip to Compass Pizza, honestly. I wish they'd... <laughs> I wish they'd do the room again. Um, but yeah, but the point being, so there's got to be, like, what is it beyond, like, the attention, beyond the stage time that is appealing about it? I think I think I just genuinely like making things out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, I love, I love making, I love synthesising a new idea from, like, whatever's happening at the moment or whatever has happened to me in the past. And then I love creating a new, like a fake product around it or a song or, or a something like I just, I do love writing. Like at the moment I'm very much in that writing mode and phase for the next show. And it's so good. Like I just, I just sit down and I just write for hours and hours and hours. And a lot of it, it will be completely unusable. And a lot of it is absolute trash, but like in there, a little, like a little slivers of good stuff and enough of that will stack up by the time I do the show that I will have a thing together. And I also think like each show I do with the exception of the last show it was really a bit show, but like each show I've done has explored a different part of me or my life or whatever. And like this one without explicitly saying it is basically exploring getting an autism diagnosis recently. And it's exploring like all the things all the ways in which I'd previously like masked and coped and like handled myself in a world that's like not designed for that kind of brain. And so it's been like just going, going back through and like riding around that has been really, really rewarding and really lovely and like juicy and, and good. So I like, I do love the writing element of it. I also, I mean, I, I th- what, what, let's before we move on from the writing. So, like, I love so much of this, and I, that's why I just want to stop down so I don't miss yeah, some sure. of it along the way. Firstly, you said it in a really simple way, but it's so beautiful and like just a lovely insight, which is just the making something out of nothing. I just think that is it's my favorite thing, and it's my favorite thing about comedy, and it's why I love like the Melbourne Comedy Festival in particular because they let all those. I think it's the best comedy festival in the world because. You can be someone performing to no one doing 20 shows. Like you got to make your thing out of your imagination. And as I always say, you didn't need to dig something out of a hole in the ground or like, you know, steal someone's land or destroy the environment or any of these sort of things. You didn't have to exploit anyone to do it. Maybe yourself, but other than that, you probably didn't have to exploit (laughs) anybody else to do it. You created something out of your imagination. And I just think that's that's wonderful. And then look at all these people here. There's jobs and laughter and all these things that have just come out of the idea that you plucked an idea out of the your head and turned it into something and now it's something and it exists in the world and it and it has its own power and momentum then. So mm-hmm. that insight alone I just loved. And if we'd stopped there, that would have been enough. But I want to talk to you about your, your writing like because I'm fascinated by how much – because I watch you perform – and like somebody like me, I'm a very long form writer, you know, 
like mm. I will often, you know, like the last 15 minutes of my comedy festival show this year are essentially a story about me thinking I hadn't paid for a coffee, but I had. That's really <laughs> – like that's how quickly I could actually tell that story, right? <laughs> like I, I tell it in 15 minutes because like that's how I tell my stories is like take something small and make it big. But like funnily enough, it feels like – what you're describing because I watch your stand-up and often it feels like quite big ideas distilled into one single line or a couple of juxtapositions, you know, whereas you've just told me that you you write a lot, like mm. write long. So I'm just fascinated by that, writing long and then narrowing it back in and its focus. Talk to me about that. So I love like – I feel like the word the word I was looking for before making something out of nothing. I feel like comedy and writing, and particularly being able to follow an idea from like its first seed to being on stage and being a real thing that is witnessed and like absorbed by other people, it feels like alchemy. It literally feels like you're taking raw elements and turning it into something that is like way beyond some of its parts. But for me, writing is very much like you write everything that you can think about on this topic. And you ask yourself questions and you answer those questions and you like you just thresh out everything. You try and leave no stone unturned. And then out of it you take the little the little threads that you're like, this is actually what's funny. Because a lot of it is just you retelling shit that you find amusing, but it's not actually funny. It's just like that's a thing that happened. And you don't like you can save that for a Medicare rebatable session with your local counselor. You don't need to bring it to the stage. But I so I think it's um like I love, I love rocks. This is related, and there's a kind of rock formation lithification, which is when a tiny layer of sediment is like added over years, and then over the years it builds into something inc- like it builds into a fucking rock, which is like incredibly strong and solid and has its own structural integrity. But it was just tiny, tiny, tiny fragments, and I think that's how a joke for me is written. It's like. You have an idea, you write that idea on your phone. You have that idea a second time again next week. You go to write it in your phone, you see you've already written it. You're like, oh, I've already thought about this. And then it slowly builds and builds and builds. And the way to expedite that process is just to dump as much sand on it as possible and then see what sticks. And then you find out what form it's going to take. It's like, okay, this is an idea. It's a play on words about this thing. Sick. What is the best way to accomplish this? Is it a prop thing? Is it a visual gag? Is it a song? Is it a one-liner? Is it a tweet? Because sometimes things are just meant to be tweets and that's okay. You don't have to turn everything into a, into a second joke. It's all right. You don't have to turn everything into a song, which I found out very recently. I thought you could make anything into a song. And then I found out songs are sometimes food and you really don't need to bust out a song every time you've got something to say. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's how I write. So I have like, so at the moment I've got two documents. I've got one that is like a show skeleton and that's like roughly where I think everything is going to go. And then I can slot things in when I've written them. And then I have a writing journal, which I think is currently, I've been working on it since last month and it is currently 30 pages. Um, what's your word count? Do you know your word count? 
I can look up the word, word count. Are you a word count person? I'm so obsessed by people's word counts on things. Like it's – this is my own personal <laughs> – I'm sure no one else gives a fuck obsession. But no, I don't think anyone else is clocking the word counts. No. I, I, do you know how many words you – like your show would be if you're doing an hour of stand-up comedy? Do you know what – like how many no, words that would be? I don't. I really struggle with word counts mm. for like minutes. Just in yeah, – Particularly okay. if it's like you've got five minutes. I'm like, well, that could be – I mean – if we're putting other stuff in there, then it, it like I really yeah. But I because I did transcription for so long, I'm obsessed. I'm also obsessed with word counts and page counts because that was how we got paid by how many words we typed an hour. So this is thirteen thousand nine hundred and fifty three words. Okay, yeah. Of which probably a thousand is usable. I mean that's pretty good though. Still, that's not bad. <laughs> Five minutes of solid one-liners. Put some songs in there. No one will know. I mean, I would have thought if if you've got like a thousand words, that's like ten minutes, right? That's like eight to ten minutes. I would have thought. Not when you have to speak reading. I don't know. I don't know. It how would many be words, different. How many words go into a Will Anderson minute? Do you uh, know? I know that, like, you know, my average. So, I an average show, like if I'm doing an hour. It's it's going to be like somewhere between sort of six and a half and eight and a half thousand words. So I can vary that you know, that wildly, really, honestly. So this year's show was like eleven thousand five hundred words, and it was meant to be a seventy minute show. And I think I've achieved that at least once. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I was yeah far out, I always go over time. I struggle with time management okay, in every what, aspect what is of that my about? life. Like, I mean, time itself is always, you know, is a tough thing. And I think post-pandemic mm. time has been one of the things that has been most affected in people's worlds. The idea, and this is an international phenomenon, by the way, like the idea that we can't correctly identify time mm. as well as we used to. But if you were somebody who already struggled with that, has that always been part of like what you found tough time management? Yeah. Massively. I, I lose, I lose time so easily. Like particularly if I'm in like absorbed or in flow in a thing, like I'll literally blink and it will have been seven hours and I've not pissed or had a snack. Like it's re- it's actually really bad. I'm getting a lot better at it, but I, I really struggle with time on stage, particularly because if I feel rushed, I will rush the material and then the whole thing will go to shit and I'll be talking so quickly that it, like I might as well have not done the bit. And then if I get too comfortable, then I will crowd work, I will do physical work and I will be up there for an extra five minutes, which is fine in a 60-hour spot and it's not fine in a five-minute spot. I was interested in uh, one of the clips I watched of you that um, it, it, maybe it was like comedy up late or one of those things mm. I think anyway you'll you'll probably remember better than than I do but you actually start with crowd work you ask you're doing a bit about dad buying your oh, dad yeah, presents your or dad something and you yeah. literally start by asking the audience like you know like what gifts they get their dad or something like that did yeah. you like do that intent like it's one of those things mm-hmm. where just when I was watching it I was going this is like a tv set <laughs> and like scout is doing like Crowd, like open, opening with like something that is so unpredictable to like, you know what I mean? Like just I could have got some really rogue. I could have got some rogue answers in there. Um, I think, um, but I was interested, like because clearly that that to, <laughs> that to me felt like a choice, right? It felt like you you intentionally chose that that's what you were going to do. Was it yeah. a choice? 
Yes, it was a bit. Yeah. It was an awkward thing because by that point, like it was for it was for like an M and M's thing. Oh, um, okay. And so it was like it, it was a bit awkward because they had a bunch of content rules of what you could and couldn't talk about, okay. and it ruled out. Most of 90% your ninety percent of my material. <laughs> Literally, you couldn't talk. You you couldn't talk about vegetarianism or veganism because they're run by Mars. Oh yeah, okay. Like it was, it was so. I sent in a a thing which I thought was like so clean, so mm. above board, and they were like, nah. And I was like, okay. And then I was like, all my other stuff has already been used at gala and uplate. So I was like, I'm really limited in what I have, but it's a nice paycheck. So I was like. Fuck it. I'll just do crowd work. If it goes terribly, they'll edit it out. If it goes well, then I've got a good crowd work clip. And I've not watched it, but I'm sure it went okay. Oh, yeah. No, it it absolutely went well. It was one of those things where the audience answers were as weird as, of course, they would be at something like that. But you handled it all very well and you had somewhere that you were going with it. But I was just interested in the choice. It's funny sometimes that I'm like, yeah, oh, she's made like a re- uh, like Scouts made a really brave, um, uh, you know, choice here. Uh, like, no, you know, it was really entirely out and like, you know, it's like, no, no, just, yeah, okay. Sometimes I was that's, out of that's options. Always. <laughs> I had nothing more to work with. But also, I, but also I genuinely do enjoy crowd work. I used to think that I hated crowd work and then I went up to Brizzy and I did a show called Crowd Control, which is where you just have to do crowd work. And then at the end of each round, you like square off and then they vote for the next comedian who did the best crowd work uh-huh. or whatever. And it was, I love, I love Brisbane comedy, man. It's so good. The scene is so lovely. Everyone is so involved. Like it's, it's a really good scene. It's a really good scene up there. And crowd con- I did crowd control because they were like, oh, you could win 50 bucks. And I was like, well, I'm already at the venue because I just did a show. So I might as well stick around. And then I did it and had the most fun ever. And I was like, man, maybe I fucking love crowd work. And now, like, I love it too much. The show that I did this year, too full of crowd work. I went over every single night, but I, but I loved it. And most of the funniest bits came from crowd work stuff. Like I have a bit about um, conspiracy theories and I get people to tell me what their conspiracy mm-hmm. theories are. And it leads to a solid five minutes of just bullshit. And I love it so much. And then one night, like we got, we got a genuine flat earther in one night. We got a guy who's convinced that Nelson Mandela was not Nelson Mandela. And they just released a different guy from prison who just looks the same. Mm. And he thought that that's what the Mandela effect was. So ironically, oh. he has been a victim of the Mandela effect. Because about he about does, Mandela. About, about Nelson. Nelson Mandela. We got some absolute co- – we got some cookers in. We got yeah. some proper cookers. One guy just said moon's fake and then didn't elaborate. That's it. You got all <laughs> the information. Like, moon's all- fake. The information you need is in what I've just told you. It's moon crazy. Is fake. You mean they fake the moon landing? No, no. No, the no, moon no. You itself. heard me. <laughs> you heard me. Yes, the moon landing was fake in that there's yeah. no moon. Yeah. How can um, you land on something that doesn't exist? Yes. <laughs> Heckler destroys comedian with facts and logic. <laughs> And then one night we had this woman who piped up from the yeah. back and she was like, just so you know, I'm Jewish. And I was like, okay, okay. I don't like where this conspiracy theory no. is going. And she's like, there is a conspiracy theory that Jews control all the money and have horns. And yet I am in student debt and have no horns. Oh, I, mean, that's I was so just good. like, yeah. I was like, this rules. And I could not have said mm. this 
morally no. or legally. So yeah, thank you so much for bringing this to the show. I'm glad you brought that up because you have something funny to say. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. <laughs> because Imagine if she'd ended on just like, yeah. they think Jews have horns. Yeah. And Silence. You're like, your job now. Over to you, Scout. <laughs> All right, guys. So we're going to divert for a couple of minutes to talk about something called the Holocaust. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, really could have gone sideways at that point. The Holocaust that, uh, unlike the moon, was real. <laughs> it was real and it did happen. <laughs> it did happen. Oh, dear. Uh, wow. Yeah, God okay. So that's interesting to me, though, because what you're talking about there is like exp- – like, connecting, you know, material to mm. the room, which is what you did in this set, by the way. Like you had a bit to go to. You weren't just going out yeah. there and generally <laughs> asking the audience. You just know, hoping was, something came out of yeah, it. There was a reason, like, you know. and Yeah. But that's interesting to me because that stuff is – the reason it goes well, you know, is because everybody has all the information. That's the when I do my improv, like the fully improvised shows, people find them intimidating. But I do say to people that it actually cuts out all the awkward bits because you don't have to do the setups, the setups are all being you don't have to explain. So, this is what this is, and this is what this is. You're like, Yeah, you just heard what he said. I'm just reacting to that guy who just said fake moon and won't follow up, (laughs) right? Yes, (laughs) exactly. We all have the same information, whereas, like. No matter what you're talking about on stage, like you're still having to go, this is me and this is what I think about this and this is the thing that I'm talking about in a way that you can never shorthand in the way that, you know, that, that crowd stuff will. Yes, it completely cuts down the need for all the exposition, all the boring bits. And then also like the one thing I did take out of clown school other than dirty feet and a panic disorder was having like a sense of like connection with the audience that like they call it le jeu, it's like the game and that idea that you are connected with the audience and you're creating something with the audience. And I think that's like when you see it, if you only watch like Netflix specials and TikTok, you don't see it because you're not in the audience and you're not feeling it. But if you go to any good live comedy show, even improv, you can see like when that sense of attunement is there and it's fucking awesome. And as an audience member and a comedian, it feels good to be a part of. And I also think like, it's gratifying for the audience as well because as an audience member, I wouldn't want to go see something that was a carbon copy of itself every single night. Like I'd want to think that my experience of it was slightly different, that I got to be part of something rather than just like witnessing something very passively. Yeah, I like the idea that if somebody came and saw you every night at the comedy festival and they came up to you like, you know, two months later and you said, they said to you, I came and saw your show at the festival this year and you said, oh, what? What night were you in? And they said, oh, do you remember the night where the dude said the moon wasn't real? Like you'd be able to go, oh, great, yeah. I'd be like, yes, moon's fake night. That was a great night. (laughs) Yeah, that was one, (laughs) certainly just one night. Uh, (laughs) I'm conscious about the fact that we're running out of time. This has been such a fun chat. But I um, uh, haven't even asked you if you have a life philosophy, which is the general kind of conceit of this. We've talked about life a lot, so I don't feel like people have been shortchanged. But the general conceit of this whole, you know, show is that I ask people if they have a life philosophy. So do you have a life philosophy of any kind? I've been thinking about this and I, do, I, I actually don't think I really do. I think, I, I, think my lo- I think my general trajectory in life is just like try and do no harm and and just just give it just give it your all just genu- actually no my life philosophy would be commit to the bit like if you're going to do something genuinely commit to it 
And most of the time that will serve you well. I don't know. I think that's, I think that's how I handle work. I think that's how I handle friendships. I think that's how I handle most aspects of life is trying to commit to stuff that I start. I think the best piece of advice I've ever received was from Josh Earl. And he said he like turned 40 and he did like this big post that was full of advice. And one of them just stuck with me and it was like, do the dishes before you go to sleep. And he was like, I meant that literally and also metaphorically. And I was like, that's a sick piece of advice because if you do a tiny bit of work to look after yourself in the future, to look after other people in the future, to look after your space in the future, then like, this sounds so dumb, but I genuinely think that makes your life better. If you just like do tiny bits. That makes a lot of sense to me. Like, that, I mean, this is my problem with like, so again, I'm, I'm not going to get into Jordan Peterson when we've got 15 minutes to go, <laughs> like in this well, podcast. This should have come up 45 minutes ago. <laughs> but the the reason that like, you know, I mean, you know, I used to, you joke about the idea of like, if you've written a book called 12 years, 12 rules for life. And one of your rules for life is, you know, when you get up in the morning, make your bed, then you've really only had 11 rules. And at the last minute you've, you know, had to, you know, but the truth of it is it's, it is the one, right? It's like, if you make your bed, if you make things a little bit nicer, whatever it, the thing it might be, it's that equivalent of what Josh has said. You, like, I mean, particularly the night before, like that's, mm. you've saved yourself getting up, you know, tomorrow to do that like you've made Mm. tomorrow's you their life just a little bit easier by Mm. you know that thing that you're doing then they're all I mean I loved all that that was a really fun you you brought up advice and one of the questions I like to ask people is you know about good or bad advice you've mentioned a good piece of advice that you've got have you ever got like a a terrible piece of advice like particularly in comedy it happens a lot but it doesn't necessarily have to be you know early on I got some absolute I got some terrible advice i got okay the three worst pieces of comedy advice oh, i ever cool. got i love that you have three one, by the way this is oh there's, there's at least a dozen cool. but these are the top three yes. that come to mind one a man who had literally bombed minutes before i was about to go on by which it was like 30 punters crowded room total silence like this man had had annihilated and he said to me now, when you go up there, it's really important to remember to smile <laughs> because people really resonate with someone who smiles. Uh-huh. And I was going to be like, bro, yeah. you lit, you, it was, it was insane. It was insane. That was one of the bad pieces of advice. Second I one. I mean, but this is what I love is that they've taken what, you know, has become a generic cliche of, like, don't tell somebody that they should be smiling. Like, and then just go, let's apply this to your profession as well. To the workplace. Oh, my God. It was like, if it had come, if it had maybe come from someone that I respected or who had just crushed, I would have been like, this has softened the blow somewhat. But it was someone for whom I had very little time and who had just done one of the worst sets that I'd ever seen. Um, Shout out, hope he's well. And I think the second worst piece of advice I got was that um, uh, it's all about content and that you should be uploading everything that you can, which kind of is antithetical to our previous discussion about not putting everything online. Um, And I got that from another comedian who has since not made much of an online content career. So that is, that is nice for me to see. Um, And then the third worst piece of advice I got, was 
never quit your day job, which I can understand why you'd give someone that advice because you don't want someone to end up in a situation where they're so financially cooked that they can't afford to sort themselves out or create at all. But I think if I'd stayed in my day job, I I would not be able to tour because I was not allowed leave. I wouldn't be able to gig as much as I wanted because I was working long hours and I would not have had the mental time to actually commit to this. Like I just would have spent every moment trying to balance my actual job with the job I really wanted to do and ending up working two jobs, one of them paying no money and just being exhausted and burnt out the whole time. Yeah. I remember seeing Roseanne Barr on uh, Oprah Winfrey. Mm. These are good topical references. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But, Uh. and yeah, back before like, you know, some of Roseanne's, she would have been great in your, do you believe in any conspiracy theories chat? Oh (laughs) my God. Uh, But this was, you know. She'd be like trans women. I don't believe Mm. they're real. (laughs) So three, 30 years ago when I first started, you know, like a long time ago, you know, she was on there and she, Oprah was asking her about fallback positions and she said her, 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 Roseanne said the problem with having a fallback position is that you will fall back on it. Mm-hmm. And I think there is some truth in that. I know that it is a privilege to also – because those who truly say I have no fallback position probably actually – They have a fallback probably, and that fallback's name yeah, is mum and dad. Yeah, exactly, like, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, you know, when I threw myself into comedy and went full-time, like – I was absolutely determined, you know, like I'm doing this off my savings, like this is me, it's all on me, I'm not going to ask my parents for uh, money and I didn't. But I did. But you knew that you knew, could. Did, I did know and I'm that exactly if it the all same. absolutely fell apart, I, I can could. move home. Yeah, right. And I will be sorted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You have that. Yeah. Yeah. And I so think- that's still a fallback position. Like it's just, uh, you know. But I do understand the, the point. Uh, so uh, three more questions, and then we're done. Thank you so yep. much for doing this, by the way. No, this has been really lovely. Yeah, I've, I've loved it too. It's been really fun, and we didn't even get on the LARPing. We talked a lot about LARPing without yeah, ever getting to talk about LARPing. I mean, I, ha- I said all I had to say. Next on time. LARPing. Yeah. I just wanted your hot takes. <laughs> I'll send you a series of cancelable laughing takes. I'll never work again. The LARPers have unionized. They're like, fair copper for our mercenaries. All right, I'm going to prepare a series of LARPing uh, jokes for the man, next time I run into honestly, you. Honestly, just for me. I feel like this it's is real, like it's real will catnip. Found <laughs> possibly something that I genuinely enjoy. I'm like, I really enjoy this, like more than I can even explain to you why. That's awesome. Did you play Warhammer as a kid? No, nah, never. We're not going to get into LARPing intensely, but I, no. were you a nerd as a kid? Uh I read nerdy books, but I didn't ever okay. like play games. You didn't do miniatures or anything. So like, I like if I've re got. Uh, so I've just recently because I was um, uh, anyway. We don't have time for all this, but I'll give you the very quick version, which is I was having a conversation with a guy in a bookstore about you know particular books I was reading, and I was saying to him that uh, you know I mostly just read for work now. So like. I'm always reading people's you know, biographies or books mm-hmm. or like, you know, something mm-hmm. that's about the world, you know, you're like, here's this thing about the internet or here's this thing about like, you know, I've just read two books about, you know, Ben Robert Smith and the war crimes mm. and the blah, blah, blah. You know, like he said, you know, the problem is that like men stop reading fiction. They stop reading for fun. 
men in particular. Mm. Let's stop mm-hmm. reading for, you know. And I used to love fantasy books when I was like a, you know, um, a teenager, a teenage boy. I loved, you know, like fantasy. So I've just started, I've just read this year like three like books, three 700-page proper like fantasy <gasps> books again for the nice. first time in my you know, for, for for the first time in a very long time. So I had some, like, appreciation of those sort of worlds and universes but never played any, no, no, never played any sort of games related to it, both neither in real life or online. Yeah. I feel like that's, I feel like that's enough. I feel like that's yeah. enough for you to appreciate the half-elf bits. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, I think you so. know what's going on. It's almost on. like the perfect amount. <laughs> yeah. Because right? if you know too much, <laughs> yeah. you'll start then talking back and you'll be like, but Scout, there aren't health elves yeah. in the Warhammer universe, uh, not even in 40K. So unless you're going to talk about space marines, I don't think we can even talk about this together. I don't think we can even agree. Yeah, let's start well actually you on, oh, on the you have no idea the well actuallys I've negotiated in this community. Oh, no, I can imagine. <laughs> I, I can definitely imagine. Oh, dear. So, um, anyway. If I could give you any superpower, so you know, like I mean, and when I say superpower, skill, yep, um, anything you just can, and you don't have to earn this. It doesn't even have to be realistic necessarily, mm-hmm. but like it could be learning a language, playing a musical instrument, flying. I don't care. Like, and you don't have to learn how to do it. This is perfect scenario. You wake up one day and you can just do this thing, yep. you know, really, really well. What is it that you would like to be able to do really, really well? Easy, being able to sleep anywhere. Oh, yeah. I'm a light sleeper. I can't sleep on a plane. I can't sleep without ear, like little earplugs and like an eye mask. And it's a nightmare for when I'm touring and it's a nightmare for traveling. And it's rough when you've got a partner that makes any sound beyond light breathing. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would be it easily. The number of partners I've mercy killed for a good night's sleep. No, um, that's 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 good and both like and practical as well. That's yes. what I, that's what Thank I like you. about that one. Um, uh, I did say three more questions, but let's let's make it two more questions because we are desperately running out of time. I want to do some plugs quickly before we go. If people want to uh, find out more about you, see stuff that you've done, access, what would you like to point people in the direction of, Scout? Um, socials and also I've got a show coming up at Melbourne Fringe. Your Melbourne Fringe show is called? Pork Chop. It is on where? At the tr- at Trades Hall Beautiful. and I will get the dates for it now. Well, people can also go to, do you have a website or is it just like their best socials? Where is the best place to find this information, Scout? Uh, it would be at, at @scoutboxel on uh, Instagram and Twitter. And also threads, but uh, we don't need to talk about that. And um, what happened? Like, because everyone joined it in one day, and then I've heard nothing else about it. Did people? That's because it's a it's a dog shit platform with terrible creators on it. (laughs) It sucks. Um, (laughs) It's not good. Uh, No, definitely uh, Instagram and Twitter at scoutboxel, scoutboxel on Facebook, and scoutboxel.com. Please make that Squarespace subscription worthwhile. Um, Uh, And yeah. Last, Everything goes up there. Last question, and then we're done. Yep. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been so no, much fun. Thanks um, for having me. I've loved it. And uh, this is the question. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, you know what? Two. We're going to do two more, and then okay. I'm done. I, I knew okay. I said two, and then I was going to go, I'll be. Anyway, just stop talking and just ask. <laughs> what do you think happens when we die? I think, I genuinely think that we either reincarnate or are ghosts of some kind. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. 
For real. Interesting. And I think that there's people that you meet that you're like, I think I knew you in a past life mm. and I think that's real. Okay. But I am a witch, so what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm not going to do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do about it? I mean, it's a very brave no, yeah. for a witch to have spent so much time in courts after those trials <laughs> that so famously had to deal with. Uh, don't bring up the C word. I'm talking about the crucible. Am I right, guys? I saw Goody Proctor with the devil. Why were you there? <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, no, I, th- I think, um, I think our bodies decompose and I think our souls go on to live in another thing or person. And if we've got unresolved business, I reckon there's ghosts. Okay. Yep. And do you think the ghosts just like hang out where the unresolved business is and then once they resolve the business, they like move on to something else or? Yes, but mm. there are not enough ghost hunters slash talkers to resolve all the business. So I reckon there's ghosts everywhere. Genuinely. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As I say it now, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, if I had a time machine and I could take you either into the future or into the past on one round trip, um, you can just go and visit something. You can visit your own life if you want, give yourself some advice or like change something. You can just completely ignore yourself and, you know, pop off and just see something in history. Like, I mean, you know, there's someone who loves history. Maybe there's a point in history that you'd like to visit. Like where would you like to go? I easy. I would go back to the Tudor period during the reformation of the Anglican church. Um, And I, I would hang out with, I'd, I'd want to be like a fly on the wall. I wouldn't be want to be like a person in that space because as a woman and a queer person, it would be an absolute nightmare. Um, but I'd want to be a fly on the wall around that political tension between the Catholics and the Anglicans, like when that was first emerging and also just, also just seeing how regular people lived. Like we've so much of our history is like, you know, history is like written by the victors or whatever, but it's also like this, just the stuff that was preserved and all the stuff that was preserved is like upper class or nobility. Like I want to see how like a shit kicking pikeman was dressed or like what a, what a fishmonger would eat for breakfast. Like I want to have like, see the slice of life in that time period from like working class all the way up to royalty. And I'd want to, yeah, that's what I'd do. Easy. Uh, Scout, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you doing the show. And, uh, yeah, thanks thanks for being part of it. Thank you so much for having me. Listener.